Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and yes, we are still in chapter 1. It's been a month, but hey. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text on the screen behind us in a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room in the little racks underneath the seats. And so if you prefer that route, grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please take one of those home. We value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe that it's effectual and does what God intends for it to do. We also believe that it's the primary means by which He makes Himself known to us as His creation. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, please take that one. And I also tell you every once in a while that we also have a box f- uh, called a Lost and Found box, and there's a bunch of actual Bibles, like non-paperback ones, with bigger print than the w- ones we have under the seat. And so if you want a nice one, Scratch your name off. <laughs> take that home. Like they're sitting in a box. Use it. All right? It's better than a box, a Rubbermaid box in the hallway, right? So, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We are walking through a series, uh, a couple weeks now into the series uh, on the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, to a church in the ancient city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. All right? uh, Ephesus was a boom town in the ancient world. Uh, it was highly influential economically, it was highly influential culturally, and it was highly influential religiously. And a big reason why was the Temple of Artemis. Did Garrett put the thing up on the screen this week? Nope. Anyways, all right. I didn't ask him this week either. So, no, the big, a big reason why uh, Ephesus was a big deal was the Temple of Artemis. That's an artist's rendering of what the temple probably looked like. It's nothing but ruins today. It's just a hole in the ground, big square that you can go visit if you go visit the, the ruins of Ephesus today. All right? But that's a fancy-looking picture uh, of what it probably might have, I don't know, maybe looked like. The Temple of Artemis was a big deal. It drove the economy in Ephesus. It was the plumb line by which uh, you understood what was and was not valuable in the city. Uh, uh, all the mores of the city uh, flowed through what happened at the temple. And so uh, we've spent the, uh, the last few weeks looking at the first chapter of Paul's letter uh, with that context in mind. Paul opens up his letter to the Ephesians by unpacking that God and Artemis are not on the same level, that God is big and puny little Artemis is nothing, all right? He didn't use those words exactly. Those are Stephen's words, but you can take them to the bank, all right? That puny little Artemis is nothing compared to the real God. That he is big and he is eternal. That unlike Artemis who could be bought or manipulated with some kind of trite offering or bribe, God can't be bought. Are you kidding me? His plan is from before the foundation of the world. You can't thwart his plan, not by some competing authority and certainly not by my ineptitude. Right? That God is over all and through all and in all. God is big. His plan is from before the foundation of the world. And it's unthwartable. So you ready to close out chapter one? I mean, we could take longer. There's basically three sections in here, and I could take three weeks to preach it. But no, we'll, we'll hit it today. Ephesians 1, let's start with verse 15, because that's where we left off. For this reason, based on everything we just talked about, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you 
in my prayer. So we said before that it's been several years since between the time that Paul was in Ephesus to plant the church and the time of his writing of this letter, which is probably 60 to 62 AD. Right? Uh, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus was planted by the Apostle Paul. You can see that story play out in Acts 19. It's a really cool story, uh, but uh, there's this thing that gets Paul kind of cast out of the city. There's a riot that starts because the gospel is going forward powerfully, and it's been several years since then. Uh, most scholars place it somewhere between five and nine years, so a good ballpark is about seven years since the time that Paul was in the city, all right? And so uh, there's been a little bit of turnover in the church, right? There's a lot of new people there. But even though there's a lot of new people, Paul's hearing some good stuff, right? The Ephesian church carries a good name. And word has reached Paul all the way in house arrest in Rome to say, have you heard about the Ephesian church? They're doing this, and they're doing this, and they're doing this. What was it they were doing? Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul hears the word that they are pursuing God well, trusting him faithfully, and loving each other faithfully. And it causes him to constantly be giving thanks as he prays for them. Right? And that's not some first century diplomatic way of buttering them up. Right? Like, that, that's oftentimes how we read nice things before we get into the heavier stuff later in the letter, right? Like, we know that he's going to correct some things down the road in this letter, but Paul is not buttering them up here. He is genuinely excited for them because these things are excitable. Like, you want to know how you encourage your pastor? Whether it's me or somebody else. Maybe you're visiting, you've got a pastor somewhere else, and, and he's pouring into you, loving you faithfully, uh, uh, speaking the scriptures into your heart and life. You want to know how you, you encourage your pastor on a, an, an incredible level? Pursue God deeply. Love the saints that you've been placed in community with. Right? You do those two things well, your pastor's in the clouds, man. Paul here goes, oh God, thank you for the Ephesians. God, thank you for them. Would you please make them blank? What do you think the blank's going to be? Says so he's praying constantly for them. The Ephesian church was far from perfect, but Paul's not patronizing him here. He's genuinely thankful for what he's hearing about them. So that got me thinking. Am I thankful for y'all the same way? Right? And the answer is yeah. The answer is yes, I am incredibly thankful that God would let me be here, right? Like, I'm still relatively the new guy. I've only been around for about six months. But as I, as I learn people's stories and I hear how y you've walked in faithfulness here and how we've walked in faithfulness there and, and all these kinds of things, whether those are personal stories or corporate stories, the more of those stories that I hear, the more thankful I become, right? And so, I mean, we could never list all of them. There's a thousand of them that I'll never even learn. I mean, let's just rattle some off, right? We're, we're a week removed from vacation Bible school. You know how many adults we had drop what they're doing and spend a week to love kids well here? Some of y'all took vacation days for this. We, I got to watch our church family serve well. And I'm thankful for that. We got a team getting ready to go to Ohio here in a couple of weeks on a mission trip. We've got other people who couldn't make this trip who were already asking, hey, when's the next one going to be? You know what that does to my heart? <laughs> yeah. 
I'm hearing stories and sometimes watching from a distance how people come into this place with, with rough situations or dark nights of the soul and I watch people come alongside them and serve physical needs and emotional needs and just love well. You know what that does to my heart? Paul. Paul says, everything I hear about you causes me to give thanks. I never stop thanking God for you. Ephesus has some problems. He's going to address those problems down the pipe. But first and foremost, Paul's going, God, thank you for the Ephesian church. So some of y'all need to hear me say, God, thank you for Nashville Baptist. What, whatever, however many days he gives me to, to hang out here, to be responsible, and give me the privilege of walking alongside and even dumbfounding way leading you somehow. And whatever days he gives me in that, I'll take it. Right? Paul says, verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So what does he pray for? Look at verse 17. Paul's going to unpack what he prays for here. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So you want to know what Pastor Paul prays for the church at Ephesus? It's not for them to grow numerically. It's not for them to have a bigger cultural influence over their city. What does he say? To give you the spirit of wisdom. There's a capital S there, right? All right so we're talking about the Holy Spirit, God himself, the spirit who gives wisdom, not some generalized, nameless thing, right? God himself give you the spirit of wisdom and a deeper knowledge of who he is. Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus is not, God, would you blow them up numbers-wise? God, would you, would you make them a juggernaut in their community where whatever they say goes? He says, God, reveal yourself to them. Help them to know you more deeply than they do Paul, who loves this church deeply, dearly, is hearing reports back to him. The Ephesian church is doing this. The Ephesian church is doing that. He's going, God, thank you for the Ephesians. Would you give them this? The this? That they would know him. And know him in a way deeper than they already do, Right? And i got to be honest, that's precisely what I want for us. Right? And I hope that's what you want too. Numerical growth and paying off all of our bills and having influence over our city, that, man, that's valuable. Those are good things. Those aren't bad things. But to have all those things and miss this, pass. Right? To have all those things and miss this means that on an eternal level, I have failed as the pastor here. If our church explodes numerically and everyone thinks that our church is the best church in New England, but we miss knowing God deeply, maybe we miss the boat entirely. Buildings and programs and influence can all be the fruit of incredibly godly stuff. They can also be the fruit of initiative and 
pulling ourselves by, up by our bootstraps and some creativity and man-made effort, right? I mean, not, I'm not the most creative guy in the room, but I like to think I'm creative enough to draw a crowd. Some of y'all came to hear me. <laughs> to have all of those things can be good. To have all of those things and miss God himself is tragedy. Tragic. So when Paul prays for the Ephesian church, it's not to, that they would have a greater influence over their city, although he probably wants that for them. It's not that they would grow numerically, although he probably wants that for them. It's that they would know God deeply. That's not all he prays for. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. All right, so the next thing Paul prays for them is that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened for something, meaning that we don't naturally see it unless God reveals it. That unless God shows it to us, we'll never see it. So what's the something? What does he ask God to have our hearts enlightened for? To see uh, the riches of his inheritance, the hope to which he has called you, right? Now, a lot of people think that those are two different things. Those are actually one thing. They're actually the same thing said in a different way, right? What does it say? The hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inheritance. Uh, our inheritance as followers of Jesus is what? Our hope. Our inheritance is the eternal presence of God, right? Our hope is the soon-to-be-fulfilled promise of being with him forever. So those sound like two things, but it's really just two different ways of saying one thing. So, why do we have to have our hearts enlightened to see that? I mean, we've been given a lot of honest answers lately. You want another one? <laughs> it's because I'm a dimwit. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. I'm not naturally inclined to trust that promise, are you? I'm not naturally inclined to rest in that. My heart is prone to wander, and I get in my head all the time and allow other things to crowd out God's promises to me. You the same? I have an uncanny ability to let my circumstances be a louder voice in my heart and my life than who God is. Trusting in a hope that seems so far off at times is not something I'm naturally inclined to. How about you? Left to my own devices, things don't usually take too long to go south. But in God's goodness, in his goodness, there are other moments where he makes himself known to me. And he shows me what he's doing. And it's not because I've earned it, but because he is good and saw fit to reveal and it's in those moments where it's really easy to trust, right? It's really easy to follow him wherever he goes. I need my heart enlightened to that, don't I? We need our hearts enlightened to what he's doing around us. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 19. 
The next thing Paul prays for is this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul frequently asks God to make the Ephesian church more aware of the great things he's doing around them, right? But not, not just that he's working, but that he's working with power. That he's working with might, right? Keep reading. Look at 22 or 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to church. That's God put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We remember who Paul's talking to here, right? I mean, we've been working on this for a month, but his audience hasn't changed, right? So who's he talking to? The Ephesian church, who lives and operates, does ministry in the context of the, the incredibly economic, advantageous worship of a false goddess. He's been telling them over and over again for a whole chapter that God is big and Artemis is not, right? Paul says... Jesus does not simply rule. <laughs> the Ephesian church was looked down on. Looked down upon by their own city, right? But they don't just they don't just live and operate in Ephesus, right? What's Ephesus a part of? It's part of Rome. How do you think the Romans saw Paul? And the tiny little church in Ephesus? if they thought about him at all, right? So Paul says here, Paul says here, we'll look at verse 21 again. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's correctly seen as a shot across the bow. Right? You're going to stand in front of Caesar and say that? You're going to stand in front of the priests of Artemis and say that? That he is the authority above all other authorities? Jesus does not simply rule over every dominion and authority and power as if that's a small thing, but he also carries a name that is valued and respected and obeyed above every other name. Have fun with that one. And that includes Caesar. That includes Artemis, but he doesn't just have a name that's above every other name. Paul says that these things are true in this age and in the age to come. Caesar's had this incredibly terrible track record of thinking that they were God, <laughs> that they were to be eternally worshipped. Paul here says, actually, no. Jesus is in charge now. And Jesus will be in charge tomorrow. And Jesus will be in charge the next day. And Jesus will be in charge in the ages to come. Right? This is a shot across the bow of not only the Ephesian culture, but the Roman culture. Paul closes out the first part of his letter to the Ephesian church by casting all doubt aside that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one that's in charge here. That Jesus and Jesus is al alone is the one who is worthy of following and worthy of their trust. Forget about Artemis. 
forget about Caesar. Look at 22 again. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says that Jesus is in charge of all things, and part of that all things is his church, which Paul here calls a body, right? Paul uses this, this analogy, and it's kind of a weird analogy if you really worry about it, but he uses it in several places throughout his writings that Jesus is the head and the church is the body. And the implication there is that Jesus is in charge and the church is not. The church follows, right? The head goes and thinks and does and the body follows, right? That's, that's the implication of his analogy. And, and in other parts of Paul's writing, he uses that analogy to, to say that the, the head goes where the head goes and the body follows. But here, here he uses the analogy in a different way. He uses it to point out that Jesus' authority over all of creation, over all other dominions and authorities, actually serves to protect the body. That because Jesus is head, because Jesus is the name above every other name, that he is in charge in this age and the age to come, that there is no other authority that we have to actually worry about. There's no other circumstance that we ought to be fearful of. Artemis and her followers, Rome and its army, can rail against them. They'll be okay. They'll be, they'll be okay. They may restrict they may be insult, they may seek to harm. That's true of us as well, right? We live in a culture that may do all of those, one, those things, and hear me, they may accomplish every one of those things on an earthly level. But on an eternal level, Jesus has got it. He's got it. Paul here reminds the church at Ephesus, as he close out, closes out the first chapter of his writing to them, that, listen, you, you may live and operate in a culture that thinks that you're a problem. You may live and operate and do ministry, try to win people to Jesus in a culture that, that sees you as a hindrance to their cause. But there's coming a day where Jesus will make all things right. You don't have to worry about how that culture sees you. You walk in love. You, you, you love your neighbor well. Don't mishear me there. But listen, as you do what God has called you to do, it doesn't matter what the culture thinks. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? He says, God's got it. Jesus is the authority above and over and above all other authorities, he is above every name that will ever be named. He has put and will finally put all things under his feet. This was true in the first century, it is true today, and it will be true in the age to come. So our job, our job is to walk faithfully in the things he's called us to, right? Pursue knowing him deeply, pursue loving each other well. Nothing more. Those things will naturally flesh out some other good stuff too but we let God be the one who brings the result. And it's here for the very first time that we see the purpose of the Ephesian letter, right? It's here for the very first time that Paul shows his cards on what he is doing. Because everything he's going to write after this is a natural outflow of this reality. 
If Jesus is who Jesus claims to be, owner and operator, authority above every other authority, one who can be trusted, one who can be followed, and one who will bring justice in perfection. All right? If he is that guy, every other thing in our world revolves around that. Knowing God deeply and how we relate to him will affect every other arena of our lives. It'll affect our home, it'll affect our work, it'll affect our social lives, and it will most assuredly affect our church. And so Paul spends the next five chapters unpacking the gospel and unpacking the practical implications of that gospel. You ready to look at the next five chapters of Ephesians? If Jesus is who he claims to be, it affects everything. There's nothing untouched by this. There is no compartmentalized, I've got this part of my life and I've got that part of my life and I like to keep them separate. No, if Jesus is over all and through all and in all, if he is the name that is greater than every other name, if he is ruler over every dominion and authority, if he is the, the leader and, and person in charge of this age and every age to come after that and even the final age, if he is that guy, then there is no other arena outside of his authority. Who cares what Caesar thinks? There's coming a day when he will make all things right. And so how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response this morning is to press into a God who has no competing authority, right? He is... He's not second place. He's not even tied for first. Rome probably wasn't too fond of Paul's words. And, you know, if they were around today to do something about it, we could probably have a chat. But they're not. So even mighty Rome ultimately fell, right? But alas... Rome falls, and our response this morning is to chase deeply after knowing God more than we do and loving the saint community he has seen fit to put us in, right? But what about evangelism? What about justice ministry? What about fill in the blank? Man, I love those. But those things aren't manufactured in a Christian's life from the ground up. They are natural overflows of a heart that is enthralled with its creator. Do I want you to be sharing the gospel with your neighbors? <laughs> yes, I do. Do I want you to be pouring into this or pouring into that because salt and light make things better in this world? Absolutely, I do. First, you've got to be salt and light. You don't build a program first. You build Jesus lovers and turn them loose. Do I want you doing all those things? Absolutely I do. Let's work on this first, and then you can't help it, and I'll be doing this. Thank my God always in my prayers for you, Paul says. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response this morning is to press into a God who is over all and through all and in all. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your love. He is worthy of your following, so chase.
In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for all of us to, to do business with a holy God and begin to put practical action to what he's doing in your heart right now. A distraction-free moment to actually put some wings to this, put some feet to this, right? If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, and I'm glad you're here. I hope you find this place to be welcoming and hope you find this place to be a safe place to work through the claims of Jesus and his gospel. Your response this morning is to become a part of the body. The body is made up of a bunch of people who saw that Jesus was good and put their trust in him, repented of their sin and followed him as Lord. The church is made up of people who have trusted in the work of Jesus on the cross on their behalf that he has paid the debt for our sin and reconciled us to God. And so your response this morning is to repent of your sin and follow him. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to have a couple of people up front here to talk to you if that's something that you want to do. God, you are good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the letter to the Ephesians. Thank you for being a God who not only big, but in control. Thank you for being a God whose character is flawless and therefore your love and your goodness is perfect. So we don't have to fear that you're in control. We can rest in your control. God, thank you for not being intimidated by the mighty Roman Empire or the Greek goddess system. Are you kidding me? They're nothing compared to you. You are the name above all other names in this age and in the age to come. So God, as we press in together as a church, would you draw us to yourself? Would you draw us to each other? Would you give us more stories that we can celebrate here and keep me dancing? Give us wisdom right now to figure out how you would call us to move. God, for those who don't know you, would you make yourself known to them this morning? Would you draw people to yourself? Would you enlighten their hearts to know? See that you are good and that you are lovely and that you love them. Give us courage to respond how you call us. In your name, amen.